This week, we will celebrate the birth of a king, the birth of a savior. We will gather with family and celebrate truly the greatest birth that the world has ever known. But let me ask you a question. When you look at the record of human history, and you look at the record of biblical history that talks about this birth, in the original context with Mary and Joseph, what was special about this birth? And when you look at the record, you find that the answer is nothing. <laughs> it's actually rather staggering that the greatest birth the world has ever known is presented to us with no fanfare. There, there are no special descriptions. In fact, this may surprise you, there are only two of the four gospel writers that even mention the birth of Jesus, and the two who mention it barely mention it. Now, I'm not saying today that the birth of Jesus is not special. That's not what I'm saying, of course. But what I'm saying is if you go back, and you look at the original setting, the original context, the original people who were there with Mary and Joseph, and you, you unpack the historical circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus, you find there truly is nothing special presented to us. It's astonishing to me that the greatest birth that the world has ever known, in, indeed, the birth of a king even, is not given to us with any fanfare whatsoever. And when I think about it, when you think about the birth of a king, we would think about fanfare. We would think about incredible announcements. We would think about attention. We would think about large gatherings of people. I mean, there would be an air of tremendous enthusiasm and celebration in the air, but that is not what you have with the birth of Jesus. I mean, I think back to 2013. Do you recall, I know many of you do, the birth of Prince George in England? I mean, listen, the anticipation, the excitement, the enthusiasm, it was, it was off the charts. I remember the official royal announcement that came because with the birth of a future king, you know, there has to be a royal announcement. And there was. It said this, the new heir to the throne is officially here. After 10 hours of labor, the royal couple welcomed their bundle of joy at 4.24 p.m. at St. Mary's Hospital in London, and the fanfare has commenced. Congrats to the new royal parents. You see, fanfare. <laughs> I remember reading various news reports about the birth of King George. Some of them read as follows. After some of the biggest baby anticipation in history, Kate Middleton and Prince William are finally proud parents to a baby boy. The royal couple welcomed His Royal Highness Prince of Cambridge on July 22nd in London at St. Mary's Hospital, and the royal couple could not be more excited to be first-time parents. Kate gave birth in the Lindo Wing at St. Mary's Hospital, the same wing where Princess Diana gave birth to William and Prince Harry. That's pretty cool. And, and then th this one article concluded with this. The crowd outside of the hospital was waiting with bated breath. Some had been camped out for weeks. Apparently people without jobs or lives. They're just 
camping outside the hospital for weeks until the good news was delivered. Now that is what you would expect with the birth of a future king. Fanfare, celebration, anticipation, right? I mean, I, I, I love that Prince George already has this title, His Royal Highness. I'm gonna start announcing that when I have grandchildren just because it sounds really cool. When I have my first grandson one day, if the Lord blesses my family in that way, you will hear me announce his royal highness. And you will know that it is not true, but it sounds good, right? That's how we treat birds around here. I mean, we all get excited about the birth of a child or a grandchild. And in the case of a future king of England, it's a really, really, really big deal. But when you go back to the birth of Jesus, this this. Savior that we celebrate this week, this king that we celebrate this week, you don't have any of this. And this entire teaching series called The Scandal of Christmas is designed to to help us look back on the original setting surrounding the events of Jesus' announcement and his birth. And what we have seen is that it's very different than the sanitized cultural version of Christmas that we have. We saw scandal in Jesus' family that, yes, he is indeed connected to Abraham and David, which was essential, but connected through some people who were absolutely messed up. We saw last week where the, the, the circumstances surrounding Mary's pregnancy incredibly messed up. And here you have a, a girl who's carrying a baby out of wedlock, and it was caused, no doubt, for shame and humiliation and a whole lot of speculation. And we saw even in Jesus' earthly ministry how there were people who ridiculed him as being from an illegitimate birth. I mean, we've seen here, if you go back to the original setting, some stuff that's kind of messed up. And and today I want us to consider really the scandal of Jesus' birth because I'm telling you, this is not what you would expect with regards to the birth of a king. There's just almost nothing even mentioned about his birth. Very, very little, even in the Bible. Let, let, Let me show you just the two gospel writers that include the birth of Jesus. Luke gives us at least some context, and then Matthew gives us almost nothing. Let's start with Luke here. You'll find it in Luke chapter 2. Check this out. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to the whole empire that they should be registered. So there's there's a census happening. And the first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. And so everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family line of David. And he went, of course, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And then she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. The end. What do we learn about the birth of Jesus from Luke? Well, it happened at a time where Quirinius is governing Syria and there's a census throughout the Roman Empire. And so Joseph, being from the lineage of David, had to go to Bethlehem, the city of David, to register along with his wife to be Mary. And while they're there, which I can't even imagine how uncomfortable that ride would have been for Mary, 
But while they're there in Bethlehem, notice Luke simply says she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloth and she laid him in a manger because there were no rooms available. That's it. And let me show you what Matthew says. It's even less descriptive. Matthew comes out of the account of Joseph being confronted by an angel of God, an angel necessary because of the scandal surrounding Mary's pregnancy, an angel telling Joseph not to, to, to divorce her. And, and, and notice here what Matthew says. Now, when Joseph woke up from this vision as the Lord's angel appeared to him, notice he then married Mary, but did not have sexual relations with her until after she gave birth to a son, and then he named him Jesus. And that's it. We have the greatest birth in the history of the world. We have a king born to Israel who is the king of all kings and the Lord of lords, and this is all we have about his birth. And what we have primarily comes to us from Luke's recollection from his historical record, which at least gives us context, but not much else except a set of very humble circumstances. Circumstances that prompt us to display nativity sets in our homes, in our front yards, like the one I have here. This is from my home. And, and here we have uh, a little nativity set. There's Joseph. Here's Jesus and Mary. And, and you'll notice Jesus is, is lying here in a manger. And the straw's all laid out. And Jesus is happy. He got a little smile on his face. Apparently, mangers are very comfortable. And I don't know about you, but if I'm being honest today, I have to tell you, this is a strange symbol for Christians to put in their homes every year. Does it strike anyone else as odd that we put barns and feeding troughs in our homes in our Christmas celebrations every year? No, 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 no. We clean it up. We, we, we don't call it a feeding trough, even though that's what it was. It's a manger. No, it's a, it's a feeding trough where animals ate from. It, oh, no, no, no. It's, it's a nativity Oh, you mean it's like a little barn where uh, this, this, this young girl had to give birth to a baby out in the open? I mean, does it, does it strike you as odd that this has become a symbol to us of like Christmas? Perhaps not because our version of Christmas is sanitized. We, 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 we've kind of, you know, presented it in such a way that it seems so sweet and adoring. But I'm telling you, go back to the first century. Look at how little is even presented about this night, about this birth. There's not much there. And what we find is rather horrific. Ladies, would you not agree with this? Those of you who have had children of your own? I mean, first of all, no epidural, okay? That seems problematic to me. Secondly, they couldn't even be inside, I mean, I'm just envisioning Joseph, okay? He goes to the Holiday Inn of Bethlehem. <laughs> and he's like, hey, we're here for the census. And would you have a room available? And I can see the person at the front desk. Okay, what's your name? Uh, Joseph. Last name? Carpenter. <laughs> All right. I'm uh, sorry, we don't have a reservation here. Um, would you have made the reservation under another name? 
Those of you who travel will appreciate this. I don't know why hotel clerks are instructed to ask if any of us would make a reservation under a different name, as if when we call to make hotel reservations, we get so panicked that we forget our own names. No, I didn't make the reservation under a different name. I mean, I can just see Joseph saying, actually, I don't even have a reservation because we don't have cell phones. It's the first century, okay? And yeah, I just, I need a room. And, and, and clearly here, it's, man, I'm sorry. There's so many people in town because of the census. We don't have any rooms. But my wife is due to give birth at any moment. Well, we do have a beautiful little lodge. We call it a lodge out back, and it's a little barn, and we have feeding troughs in there she could lay the child into. Oh, that sounds great. I mean, can you imagine Mary, again, having to travel at this stage in her pregnancy would be difficult, and then they get to Bethlehem, and they don't even have reasonable lodging, and sure enough, she goes into labor, and she gives birth to this child amidst already very, very tense circumstances. I mean, we would at least agree these are unique circumstances, right? In the midst of all of this, she's giving birth outside, and she's laying her son in a feeding trough. That's Jesus' first crib. Listen, I remember my firstborn, man. We were at Babies R Us every other day. And we had to pick out, like, I mean, you got to have the right kind of bedding for your baby and bumpers. Y'all know about bumpers? Okay, got to have the bumper. And we still have the first pillow that our daughter used. Well, she didn't use it because you're not allowed to have pillows or turns out you're not allowed to have bumpers in there either. But, buddy, we had them because you got to have them. I mean, the very first crib for the, for the greatest king ever born is a feeding trough for animals. I'm just saying, man, like, we kind of clean this up, don't we? <laughs> and I'm not anti-nativity. Don't send me any emails about being anti-nativity. That's not my point. My, my point is simply this, that we often read past the contrast presented to us in history that the greatest king that the world has ever known was born into the most humble of circumstances. No fanfare. No, no anticipation from a community of people. Nobody's camped out for weeks outside the barn waiting for Mary to deliver the king of Israel. I mean, it's just, it's, it's striking to me that very little is mentioned, and what is mentioned, if I'm just thinking about my wife and, and our four children being born, I'm just thinking what is presented is pretty horrific. Can't imagine what Mary was going through. And it's a reminder to us that Christianity has these symbols that are strange to an unbelieving world. And they don't seem to make a lot of sense unless you really understand the significance of what happened. Unless you really do understand the significance of Christmas. Unless you really do understand that our great God brings salvation out of scandal. That our God brings salvation out of what appears to be scandalous situations. And then may I submit to you this morning that the greatest scandal 
of Christmas is that Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world, the long-awaited Messiah, that he would veil his deity and take on humanity and would enter this world in a barn, live as a carpenter's son, endure incredible hostility and ridicule, and eventually die for our sins. That is the greatest scandal of all. He didn't have to do it. It's our sin, our failure that prompted it. It was the grace and the mercy and the initiative of God that accomplished it. But listen to me very, very carefully. This Christmas story and these Christmas symbols are meaningful to us, not because of what they are in and of themselves, not because Christians are a people that promote barn births. And if you really love God, ladies, you will give birth in a barn. That's what Christians believe. (laughs) If you know anybody who believes that, run the other direction. (laughs) All right? Of course that's not what we're saying. We're not a people who go around saying, oh, yes, mangers for cribs. That's not what we're about. So if you're new to Christianity or you're new to church and you really think about this, you're like, why do all these people have these things in their front yards? And why is it when I go over to somebody's house who's a Christ follower? Yeah, we see that. Why? It's not because we're barn people or, or, or main, manger. You, you know what it is? It's, it's, not, it's not about the, the barn, the, the manger. You know, what it, you know what it's about? It's about what happened there. It's about the fact. Here, here's, here's why we set up nativity sets. To remind us that the greatest king the world has ever known was born to us in the most humble circumstances you can ever imagine. And why is that important? Because through the humility of Jesus, we see the glory of God. We see the glory of God in the humility of Jesus. You know what we see in this birth that's... (laughs) barely mentioned. You you know what we see in these circumstances that I don't think any of us would want to endure ourselves? You know what we find? We find a God that so loves us that at his own expense and through his own humiliation, he enters the world so that he can redeem us from our sin. You won't find this in any other system of thought. If you're new to church, new to Christianity, new to the Bible, let me tell you something. You won't find this in any other religious system of thought. Every other religious system is built on the principle that we have to do something to get to God. It is only the message of Christmas that reminds us, no, we can't do enough to get to God, but because God is gracious and merciful, he came to us. And how did he come to us? Humbly. humbly. With fanfare? No. No, that's later. With ideal circumstances? (laughs) Are you talking about a guy in Joseph who comes from a pretty messed up family and a wife who is pregnant with a baby that he didn't conceive? Born Outside and laid in a feeding trough? No, I wouldn't call those circumstances ideal. No, this king came humbly, rather quietly. This king came to communicate that there is a God of glory who communicates his love 
not in unrealistic expectations, but in personal engagement and investment. He came to live among us. He came to be with us. This is the message of Christmas, is it not? God with us. He came to be with us. Jesus came, born in humble circumstances, raised in a very normal way of life as a carpenter's son. But he came as the son of God with his deity still fully intact, veiled by his humanity so that he could live and eventually die for us in our place for our sin so that through his sacrificial atoning sacrifice, God could pour out his wrath for our sin on the innocent son and savior so that you and I through faith in that savior can be free from that wrath that we deserve. This is what Jesus has come to accomplish for us. This is why you don't see the fanfare early on. You don't, you don't see the people waiting outside the manger scene and the nativity scene. No, no, no. This Savior, this King was born into humble circumstances. And his humility enables us to see his glory. And truly contemplate afresh and anew the majesty and the love and the mercy of our great God. Can I tell you what the Apostle Paul said in reflecting on these truths just about the ministry of Jesus? He said this in Philippians 2. Check this out. He says we should adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Check this out. Who? Existing in the form of God. He's God. 100% God. But he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow one day in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is King to the glory of God the Father. This is the Jesus that we worship and celebrate. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords, but we best see his glory through his humility. God with us. Listen to what Paul's saying here. He, he is God, the second member of the Trinity, fully God. He created the world. He holds the world together, but yet he took on human flesh. That's what Paul means here when he says he emptied himself. There's been much debate about that over the years. Some have said, oh, yes, he emptied himself of deity. No, 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 no. Paul's not saying that he, he did not possess his deity, he is saying he veiled his deity by cloaking it in humanity. He took on humanity. He grew in wisdom and stature as we do. Eventually, he endured death on our behalf. I think here of like a, an old, I think it was like a play school flashlight I had when my kids are little. I don't know if you remember, there's like yellow casing, I think. And it had, it had like a white light, it would shine. And then it had like these, this little thing you turn and it would have like a little red film that would cover it. And it could be a red light or like a green light or a blue light. Anybody else remember those? I used to have these little play school flashlight. You know, when that light is on, it's, it's, it's shining as bright as it can. And even when you turn and, that, and you cover it with the red little film there and the light goes red, it's not as bright. You know what? On the inside, that, that light is still shining just as bright. You say, why isn't it as bright in what you see on the wall? Because it's veiled. 
The light is just as bright, but it's veiled, and so it doesn't shine as bright. here's, Here's what Paul is saying about Jesus. When he took on humanity, the light of his deity was shining just as bright. No diminishing of his deity, but he veiled it in humanity. And therefore, he lived on this earth for over 30 years, and he experienced the sting of ridicule and hardship, temptation, yet without ever succumbing to it. He lived as we live. He died in our place for our sin. And how did he die? Paul emphasizes this. He, he even endured death on a cross, a Roman cross, which was a horrific way to die. In fact, listen to me. Death on a Roman cross was so horrific that Cicero said that men should not even speak of it. And yet this horrific symbol of death has become our symbol for hope. Think about this. Two of our greatest symbols this time of year is a barn and a Roman cross. You see what I'm saying about these being strange symbols? Who celebrates one of the most horrific, torturous ways of death that the world has ever known? Who celebrates a child being laid in a feeding trough? It's not the cross that we celebrate. It's not the manger that we celebrate. It's the Savior that we celebrate because of what he accomplished in both of those places. And what do those two symbols have to do with each other? Well, this baby born into humble circumstances died a humble, torturous death so that you and I could have eternal life. There's no other way for us to know God. There's no other way for us to be saved. You may be here today, you may be watching us online today, you're like, you know what, I'm doing the best I can. Well, I appreciate that. I've I've tried that myself. You know what, it's just not good enough. None of us can be good enough. The only hope that we have is to come to this Jesus who is a king born with no fanfare, but a king who will one day be celebrated and honored with much fanfare. So much so that every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess to him that he is indeed the king of kings and the Lord of lords. No, the fanfare is coming, amen? It's coming. (laughs) And the only hope that you and I have today is the hope that this Jesus can and will save us from our sins now before it's too late. Because this has always been his mission. Can I remind you of what the prophet Isaiah said about this king who's coming? Listen, Isaiah said he he grew up before him like a young plant or like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. And yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains and we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. And we all went away like sheep, and we've all turned our own way. 
but the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And when you come to understand that, yeah, there, there is a flaw deep in the heart of every single one of us, that's sin, and that we can't, we can't have true peace and we can't have true hope on our own. And you look to the message of Christmas and you look at these symbols of a manger and a cross and you see not what they are in and of themselves, but what they represent. The fact that you will see the glory of God through the humility of Jesus. And you see that this Jesus came for you to die for you, to take your place, to take your iniquity, your shame, your guilt. And you ask him to come into your life and to forgive you, to restore you, to heal you. Guess what? He'll do it. He'll do it right now. It'll change everything about your life. I promise you. I make you that guarantee. It'll change everything about your life. And that is your deepest need and that is mine. And if you've never made that decision, you've never made that commitment, please don't leave here today. Please don't turn off our broadcast today before you ask Jesus to save you from your sins. Because if you ask him, he will do it. He'll do it. He is a humble savior, born of humble circumstances to show a glorious mercy and grace. And maybe you're here today and you are a Christ follower and we're coming to the end of a really hard year and you're dealing with some doubt or discouragement or disappointment or anxiety or frustration. Maybe, maybe there's some things in your life right now that are troubling to you. May I just encourage you with this simple truth. Christmas is a reminder that God is with us and he's with you. And he is with you to the end. This Jesus was born of humble circumstances. His birth scarcely even mentioned. The, the manger that we look at is a reminder to us. Now, this God loves us, came to be with us, to sympathize with us, to comfort us, to encourage us. You hang in there. You persevere. You stay faithful because the Lord will not leave you or forsake you. He didn't send his son into this world in these humble circumstances to communicate his glory to us so that he can at some point in time leave us and abandon us. He's with us to the end. And no matter what you're facing today, be reminded this week as we gather to celebrate this birth that it is the greatest demonstration of God's love for us. The fact that Jesus came to be with us in humble circumstances. A king born like no other king has ever been born. No fanfare, no glory yet, humility so that he could accomplish what we could not and one day be glorified in a way that he rightly deserves. God loves you, God is with you, and God is for you.